that there is a, a big difference between being a leader and being a manager. Some people are born managers and, you know, they're just really good at the nuts and bolts of, you know, assessing a team and organizing a team and managing a team. That's not me. I'm, I'm crap at that. I'm useless. I'm totally disorganized. But I think um, leadership is way more than that. Leadership is all about, you know, putting in the time, working hard, staying humble, letting, you know, showing the people around you that you're in, in the fight with them. You're not the person who's locked in the corner office. You're sitting at a desk with them. They see you kind of putting in the hours and, you know, and they want to be in that fight alongside you. Hello and welcome back to the Arena Podcast by Kaufman Fellows, where we dive deep into the stories of some of the most fabled names in VC. I'm your producer, Nihar Nilakanti, and this podcast is hosted by Jeff Harbach, CEO of Kaufman Fellows. Joining us in today's episode is Andy McLaughlin, partner at Uncork Capital and a Kaufman Fellow from Class 22. We can't wait to share his story with you, so let's get right to it. All right, welcome back to the Coffin Fellows podcast. We are in the arena today with Andy McLaughlin from Uncork Capital. Andy, great to have you here, man. Great to be here. Thank you. Pumped to have you. Pumped to have this conversation with you. So, Andy, we'd like to start with just kind of understanding what you're doing now. So, give us a snapshot of Uncork. Tell us what you're what you're doing today, and what is kind of a day to day. Uh, what does your day look like? Yeah. So we are a seed stage fund based between Palo Alto and San Francisco in California. Um, I think maybe the thing that's kind of most notable about our fund is uh, of the three partners, none of us are from here. As you can tell from my accent, I am a Brit. Um, my managing partner, Jeff, is French and Steph is from the East Coast. But we're all kind of out here dealing with imposter syndrome and um, trying to make our way in the world. The fund, um, current fund, $100 million, um, operating out of Fund 5. Firm has been around for 15 years now. We just had our 15-year party. And you've made a, a transition recently from soft tech to Uncork. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the the name, I mean, the fund is exactly the same. The people are the same. The name was really driven by three or four things. I think the first thing was that soft tech VC was really synonymous with Jeff Clavier. And, you know, Jeff is smart enough and humble enough to realize that this fund isn't just him and won't be just him going forward. And so trying to find a name that kind of embodied the, the character of the rest of the people around the table. Second thing was that, um, you know, it was a name that really didn't describe what we did anymore. You know, soft tech was born in the days of Jeff doing a lot of consumer and social media investing. And today, you know, we invest in hardware, we invest in deep tech and space, a lot of enterprise and B2B and marketplaces. And so we wanted something that was broader. Um, and, you know, the third thing is, you know, Jeff and the rest of us all really love wine. Um, the I think the thing that kind of drove the the timing on the decision making, though, was just SoftBank. And it was remarkable the number of people who would mistake us for a fund that had literally a thousand times more money than us. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> just because of the soft and the title, right? Exactly. 
So tell us, uh, with Uncork, what are some of the things you are focused on today and what do you look for? What, what, are, what are some of the things that you're excited about looking for in founders? Yeah, so you know, we're a, a generalist seed fund. Um, so as I mentioned, we look across kind of hardware and software opportunities, both in consumer and in, uh, in enterprise. I think the um, the way that we define what we're looking for was kind of what's said by Jeff on stage and was then turned into a cartoon that sits on our wall, which is the three S's rule, which is we're looking for um, smart ass teams building a kick ass product in a big ass market. Um, and I think what we're what that boils down to is you know when you take that first meeting with the founders, getting that kind of chill, the you know oh my god you know we've got to we've got to invest in this company. And then kind of doing the work to make sure that we're not kind of walking into something that's too good to be true. And you tell us about some of the companies in the Uncore Capital portfolio. Yeah. So, you know, there are names that you would have heard of like um, SendGrid and Fitbit and Eventbrite. They've all been great IPOs over the last few years. And then we have um, up and coming names. So people like um, Shippo, Front. Postmates, LaunchDarkly, you know, and I think this talks about the the kind of breadth of the types of businesses we're investing in. You know, we are a kind of North American focused fund, but I'd say that a lot of the founding teams, you know, they have their operations, GNA, R&D, somewhere else in the world. And so when I look at the the diversity, both kind of geographically and everything else of the founders we have, it's actually a pretty special group of people. You know, we as, as investors, we love all of our founders and we love all of our portfolio companies equally, of course. What are some of the things that you look for in a in a great founder that you're looking to invest in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has to be the founding team versus kind of just the single founder. Um, you know, we, that's not to say that we wouldn't look at single founders. I just think that it's such a hard journey to go on at the beginning that having more than one head around the table is a good thing. And it can be a very lonely journey as well. And so having people kind of there with you. And that said as well, you know, I'm looking for... I, you know, I'm looking for this kind of trifecta when I invest, and that is a team that has great commercial chops, the ability to build a great technology, and then the ability to productize it as well. And if you can find a team that has, you know, one of those people in, one, in each one of those roles, that I think that's kind of the, the basis of, of magic. And you certainly would know about having pro- teams for, for startups because you were a member of, of a team in a startup, but we're going to get there in a second. Let's talk about you know, kind of the formative experiences in your life and where, where we started, kind of the early beginnings. So tell us about, you know, you said that you're a Brit. Tell us where you're from. Tell us where you're born. Tell us about your family makeup. Yes, yeah, so I was born in uh, in London um, in uh, in June of 1979. Hence, I've, I've just celebrated my, my 40th birthday, which is... Welcome to the 40s Club. Thank you. Yeah, which is remarkable because the last time I checked, I was 27. That's right. <laughs> um my family, um, I think, you know, a pretty typical British family. Uh, my dad's family are, are all Irish immigrants. My mum's family are from the northeast of Scotland. Um, you know, in our recent histories, they were farmers on one side and fisher people on the other. Um, I was actually the first of my family to go to university as well, which was uh, which was pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, and, and so now, you know, as we kind of look look forward and kind of think about, you know, which one of our children we will be the first one to get their, their PhD and, and go on to to do something really, really amazing. Amazing. And what were some of the, you know, in your early childhood growing up in the UK, what were some of the, maybe the technologies or the inventions, what were some things that really drove you, that excited you? Yeah. And actually, this is funny because I saw a pitch deck yesterday that had a logo in it that I hadn't seen in many years, decades. Um, And it was the logo of um, the Commodore computer, um, because I guess someone on the team had worked at Commodore. So the Commodore Amiga 
was the second computer I had. I think the first was the Sinclair Spectrum Plus 3. And so that was, you know, my first, you know, these were really my kind of first introductions to writing in basic, playing computer games, having my mom come in and turn the computer off because I'd been spending like 10 hours straight on it. Um, and I also remember ordering my first modem, um, which was a Motorola 28.8 kilobytes from um, from the Sunday Times and getting on the internet for the first time when I was probably 14 or 15 and just being like, oh wow, like there is all this stuff out there. Literally anything you could ever want to know is there. Um, it's mostly really ugly websites and a lot of spinning GIFs, but it is there. So when you were 10 then, or when you were young, based on all the things that you've done in programming and getting on the Commodore, what did you have an idea of what you want? Was this something that really drove you and got you excited and passionate? Was this something that led to what you wanted to do? I mean, at the time, I didn't know, you know, when I was 10, I probably didn't know that you could build a career yeah. doing this. I mean, you know, looking back, it was probably obvious, but maybe in this kind of slightly informs what I, I do now. But the I remember kind of the first job that I, I thought would be really, really cool was after watching um, the Dudley Moore movie, Crazy People, if you remember that, and really wanting to work in advertising. Awesome. Because I was like, that looks like so much fun. Awesome. <laughs> We've all had those movies in our lives, but that that one I've not heard. That's awesome. Um, all right, so fast forward then. Now we go to kind of university, college. Tell us about that experience. Where'd you go? Tell us about that part of your life. Yeah, so I, um, I went to the University of Sheffield, um, which is a, a university in the north of England. Um, I studied economics there, and that was really driven by not knowing what else to do and kind of sitting down with my dad when I was 16 or 17 as I was thinking about university applications. And the point he made was like, if you have a degree in economics, you can basically do anything. Um, I was very lucky that I was the final year in the UK um, where there were um, grants for students. And, you know, I lived, my parents are divorced, so I was living with my mom, and we means tested at a very low salary. And so, you know, luckily, I got a full ride to go to college. Um, what that meant, though, was after the first year, I remember thinking I should, I should probably do something else. I mean, economics is fun, but it would have been way more practical to have done computer science or information systems or, or management information systems or something like that. Now, unfortunately, the way that my um, the application worked was my the funding was basically tied to that. So I was kind of stuck with economics for, for the next two years. Um, so I did as much IT and IS and CS stuff as I could alongside economics, but it was, it was still primarily an economics and econometrics degree that I came out with. Um, and so kind of because of that, I guess I indulged my passion for computers by running businesses on the side. Um, and the first one I did was kind of like a an early, very low-tech, kind of crappy local Groupon-type competitor where we would go to local shops and um, get them to sign up to um, to pay us money in order to drive students with deals to, to their establishments. And these were mainly like bars and restaurants and a fish and chip shop. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that we got, got as much free food and drinks out of it as possible as well. So what was it? You go to University of Sheffield, you get an economics degree, do more of kind of the econometrics, you, you look to add in IT. Where does starting businesses come into this? Where, where did you kind of get that itch? And how did that itch get scratched for you? Yeah, so my what I'd realized when I was probably 18 was that I could make as much money building websites during my summer break as I could work, like having a like a regular job throughout the entire year. You know, I could stay at home in the mornings in my pajamas and dressing gown and um, and just code and build and make graphics and extract way more cash 
than actually having a real job. And so that really, you know, coupled with kind of being just fascinated by the internet kind of gave me my first insight into how you could actually kind of like build stuff with this. Um, my first job was working for a telco, um, a B2B telco called Fibernet. Um, there was actually a pretty successful business at the time. They were like a FTSE 250 company. So one of the, the biggest 250 businesses in the UK. Um, and they took a gamble on bringing on this kid with literally zero commercial experience to look after all of their external websites. And it turned out I could, I, I could do this with my eyes closed. And so I then started looking after a bunch more projects. So I managed their intranets, their extranets. And um, I ended up working with a company that provided the document management and business process software that powered a lot of this. I then, they pushed me to go and work for them where I was um, a pre-sales consultant. I then ended up in product management with them. And what I realized was that every single company we were selling the software to had the same need, which was like, okay, this is great. It works on premise. What if you could run this kind of People didn't say in the cloud because the cloud wasn't really a thing, but you know they just wanted to kind of have it there where their partners could access it without needing to open up their firewall. And that was really kind of where the idea for Huddle was born. So on, I think it was probably the last day of October in 2006, um, I wrapped up at that, that company. And as of the 1st of November, I was an entrepreneur. Um, and back in the day, entrepreneur was this kind of dirty word in the UK. Um, it kind of meant that if you were an entrepreneur, you couldn't get a real job. And, you know, people would ask me when I when I moved over here, like, what's the big difference between the UK scene and the US scene? And, you know, bear in mind, this is now 15 or so years ago, but it, it felt like you told people that you were building a startup in the UK and they'd laugh and say, why? And then you come out here and you said, and you told people you're building a startup and they'd be like, that's awesome. What does it do? And then ask you how it was different to like the 10 other companies they knew that did something similar. Right. Yeah, uh, entrepreneur in many areas, especially in the past, has equaled unemployment. Yes, uh, that's and that's not the case certainly here. So, any failures? I mean, you 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 looked at different uh, starting different businesses. You did the kind of this low um, low key Groupon ish kind of a business. C- complete failure. Complete failure. Tell tell us about the failure piece and how that was. Um, I think you know you. you most businesses fail, and I think you know when you when you are doing it for the first time and it doesn't work out, it's completely heartbreaking. When you've seen it a hundred times over, like we have now, you just realise it's just the way of the world. Um, I think that you know you you realise that it um, it's driven. You know, some of it is just completely out of your control. And I think as well, like you know, I because of kind of running this business and because of kind of being involved in student government and became, became doing a bunch of other stuff, I didn't really apply myself to my studies the way I should have done. And so I didn't come out with the result that I really wanted to from college. And so, you know, I had to really make sure that in order to solve for that, I, you know, I could get really good at something else. So how did those, what did you then learn from those failures? I mean, you're right. We get, the more you see of them, the better you get at it. But how was that for failure number one, for failure number two? How'd you get out of bed the next morning? How did you think about what I'm going to learn, how I'm going to apply it, and how I'm going to get better? Um, I just think you have to be extremely pragmatic and realize that, you know, most things that you try will fail and you just have to pick yourself up and and start again. And I think it's, we weren't living in the times of social media back then where it was very easy for everybody to project this kind of sense that everything's great and everybody's killing it. And, you know, we certainly kind of, I wasn't living in the startup world. It was just, you know, you you tried something and, and if it didn't work, 
you know, your dad or your, or your friends or someone would probably tell you, A, that you're an idiot or B, that, that it's fine and everybody fails and you just get on with it and try and, and try something else. And it also, you know, it, 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 I guess it felt, it didn't feel like it was the be all and end all. You know, when you're running a business on the side at college, it's just a fun thing that you do versus something that you need to do to support yourself and your family. So when we talk about pivotal moments for you, Andy, one of the big pivotal, pivotal moments for you was taking this dive and, and actually starting Huddle. Tell us, I mean, you talked about already how important uh, you see it, uh, it being in finding a team, not just an individual, but rather a team. You found a team. How did you find, find your co-founder at Huddle? It's a, a weird story, but um, through badminton. Okay. Which is maybe the most British answer I have for you there. That's other, really other, British. Other than Polly. No, what had happened was um, one of the guys I worked with at this telco, um, so I was living, they were based outside of London, I was living outside of London, I would come into London, you know, as, a, as most 20-somethings want to do, because that's where all the fun stuff happens most weekends, and I would stay with my friend Tom. My friend Tom's best friend was a guy called Alistair, and, um, and Alistair... And I, you know, we would play badminton together occasionally. We would hang out, we'd drink beers, and we'd, you know, we'd kind of talk about what it would be like to run a business. Alistair was an exec at a consultancy in London. You know, I was a product person. And it just, you know, things just kind of fell into place. I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, in serendipity. And, you know, things often happen for a reason. And when you've got someone that you like who is kind of on the same path and on the same timeline as you, who's interested in doing something, you'd be crazy not to explore and see where that goes. And again, it felt like a very low risk way. You know, we didn't have families. We didn't have a lot of kind of money on the line in order to get this going. So, you know, we started meeting up every month and it was every week and it was every few days and beginning to kind of plot this. And at some point, we're like, you know what, we should just leave our jobs because we could always go back and get other jobs. You know, this was pre Lehman Brothers and everything else. So like 2006, 2007, the world was still a bright and shiny place. And, you know, it felt like a super low risk thing to do. So we tried it and I kind of described the experience um, like if you've ever seen um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he's kind of getting towards the um, the Holy Grail. And one of the things they have to do is take that walk of, um, of belief. I forget what it's called. And you basically have to close your eyes and take that first step. And that's what it felt like where we would close our eyes, we take our first step and then the second and before you know it, you're jogging and then you're running and then you've got more people running alongside you like that, like the scene in Forrest Gump. I make a lot of movie analogies. Yeah. And, um, you know, before, and before I knew it, you know, we were 200 plus people split between London and San Francisco. We had teams in D.C. and New York. And I'm like, oh, my God, how did this happen? I love that analogy because you're right. He, he, uh, Indiana Jones, he puts his foot out and he, he doesn't believe that there's going to be something there. And then he lands on it and he spreads like the sand and he can see yeah. the walkway. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that's a great analogy. You're right. And so now here you are from 2006 to 2016, you take this 10-year journey where you've expanded cities, you've done all these things with Huddle. What was that? Tell, tell me, what is the most important thing that you took away from that 10-year journey with Huddle? Um, I think that, you know, the, the thing that stays with me through that are the people. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm very, very lucky to still count so many of the people that I worked with as very dear friends. Um, you know, these are people that I may never actually kind of work one-to-one with or lived close to or spend a lot of time with ever again, but I know that I'll be able to kind of pick up my relationship with them at any point. Um, and, you know, and many of them are going on to do like incredible things. And when I look back, though, and I kind of think, you know, we did a lot of, we did a lot of things wrong, we did a lot of things right. Um, 
I think, you know, we were lucky that we had the benefit of timing. Um, we had the benefit of good fortune with us. I think, though, that the um, that ultimately, you know, we were a little bit muddied in some of our execution. I think we tried to do too much stuff. I think that we were guilty of being, of being allowed to have been driven too hard too early on the commercial side versus kind of building out a really strong core product. And we were just playing catch up after that. And so... You know, I feel like maybe that informs the way now that I think about working with my companies, which is, you know, you absolutely have to be focused on what's the long term commercial goal of this business. How are we going to make money? But you shouldn't ever be chasing dollars in the early days at the um, at the risk of actually building a really strong foundation, because often the two don't go hand in hand. Great advice. And I love that you started with, you know, really the things you took away were the relationships that were built. It's it starts and stops there. So now taking another pivotal moment in your life, the move from the US, from the UK to the US. Tell us about that. What what kind of was the catalyst for that move and how was that coming into, you know, moving to Silicon Valley and being a part of this ecosystem? Yeah, so I, you know, I'd been out here to the US quite a lot as a kid. Like my dad is a, a huge America file. Um, I think he was incredibly happy when I decided to move out here because it meant he'd have a good excuse to come out every year or two. Um, I came out here with Alistair for a conference in 2008, um, the Office 2.0 conference, which was held at the St. Regis in San Francisco. And that was really the kind of first time we'd come as business people out here. And what you realized was the from when you're looking at Silicon Valley from the outside in, it can appear even more so today than ever like this big universe, which is increasing, like incredibly hard to break into. And just there's so much activity. But what what it, what you realize when you're kind of here and you're connected to people is that it's a very short hop, no matter who you want to get to. You know, it could be Mark Andreessen or Reid Hoffman or Jeff Clavier. They're probably only one or two people away from the people you already know. And um, and just kind of realizing that the universe wasn't actually that big made me feel pretty comfortable about wanting to come out here and and give it a crack. What it also made me realize, though, was that the the bar was so high. So I think, you know, we'd been doing really well in London and kind of living in a little vacuum where we were the SaaS business building like the cool company. You know, we had a lot of great clients there, but, you know, we had global ambitions and in order to kind of to service those, we'd have to be out here. And we came out here and we're like, holy shit, you know, the, the level of execution with some of the businesses in our space is just so high that, you know, we are going to really have to step up our game. One of the things we talk about in the Coffin Fellows is your zone of genius. Andy, what did you? Where did you find your zone of genius? Was it through your journey through Huddle? Was it the transition from Huddle to Uncork, which we want to talk about? How did you kind of identify your zone of genius? Um, well, the actual, I think the identification came in module one of the uh, of the Coffin Fellows program, where we were sitting down and you know, as a as an emotionally stunted British person who does not like talking about their feelings. That module was was really hard for me because you know you are encouraged to open up and um, and really talk about what's going on inside and really kind of examine yourself and try to understand what it is that you're you're good at and you're bad at and what I I guess what I believed coming into this job was that in order to be a great VC I would have to be great at, at everything I'd have to be great at negotiating I'd have to be great at financial engineering I'd have to be great at helping our teams manage the uh, manage sales hiring you know all the way you know to the minutiae of kind of helping them choose the right t-shirt brand for their for their swag and but what what that module made help me believe was that um actually i don't need to be great at everything um and in the same way as i would have augmented myself 
in huddle with people that were really great at doing the things that I'm not. The same is true in in this career. And what I realized that I'm, you know, I am good at is um, I am very, very, very good at people, meeting people, bonding with people, um, remembering people, connecting people, and not wasting people's time. And I think that a lot of those kind of go, like they really do go hand in hand, because I think when you understand what motivates people and what they care about, you can better find a way to help them without it coming across as transactional. And what I didn't understand was that not everybody likes that. Not, and not everybody can do it. And there are people who I think of as being like way, way, way smarter than I am, you know, with like brains, you know, 10 times the size of mine who can't do this because they're, they're just not wired that way. Isn't it an amazing thing to go from having this thing called imposter syndrome that we all have, which is this feeling that I'm not smart enough, I'm not X, Y, Z enough to be in this business. And I just hope that some people, you know, the people around me don't figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing on an everyday basis to then actually realizing that some of the things that you took for granted that you thought were so simple that everybody could do were actually things that not everybody could do and actually were part of your uniqueness and your zone of genius. It wasn't that kind of a, for me, that was a huge mind-opening exercise that I went through. It sounds like it was for you too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as well, the uh, the folks in, in my class would probably also say that having the accent covers over, over a lot of the cracks on the other areas. The accent <laughs> definitely helps, Andy. It definitely helps. Let's, uh, let's not lie about that. Um, you know, and I see you as someone that is in your class very much uh, a glue person. I mean, you, you the, the, with the things you do with the t-shirts to the the things that you do with your form mates. I mean, it, you've, you certainly have been that. So it's it's fun to see that evolution. And he tells about um, the. You know, there's a third pivotal point in your life that I really do want to talk about is is uh, having a child and and starting a family. Tell us about how that's played into your journey and what that's meant to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not naturally a very patient person. In fact, I'd, I'd say that I'm extremely impatient. Um, and what the what having a child has taught me is that um, is that patience is indeed a virtue and um, taking time, breathing, uh, waiting for the other person to complete what they need to do. And the first time I realized this was when I was feeding my daughter and, you know, we'd been sitting there for 20 minutes and she hadn't drunk all of her milk from her bottle. But if I was prepared to give her another 20, she would finish it and then she would sleep for an extra an extra two or three hours because she wouldn't be hungry. And so you think about this kind of silly milk analogy. How do you apply that to to your other interactions where if you're prepared to, to take a breath and kind of let the other person kind of... Um, Get to the get to the right point. The outcome can be way way higher. What um, what my wife likes to tell me is that I am um, goal oriented versus process oriented, whereas she is process versus goal oriented. And you know, although we tend to reach the same decisions at the end, the way that we get there are very different. And so, you know, understanding that she sometimes needs a bit more time to get to the answer. Often, those answers will be more correct than mine because I end up in you know a rough ballpark where she can actually zero in. On exactly what we should be doing has uh, has meant that actually we we probably get on a lot better during stressful times than we would have done otherwise. She's extremely intuitive. Andy, as an investor, better investor pre-daughter, post-daughter. I mean, I would like to think I'm a better investor today than I was three years ago. So I'm going to say post. How much of that was to do with my daughter? I don't know. I would say probably some. What were some of the things that you've learned that you've taken away from being a father? Besides, you already gave us one example, but any others that you take away? I think as 
as an entrepreneur, maybe you know that you take this for granted. Um, but I think had I had I come to investing from kind of maybe a, a slightly more stable space, had I been a former lawyer or a former banker or something, I think the thing that having a child would have taught me is just that you know everything is in constant flux. When you are dealing with your child, you're dealing with sleep schedules, and you are um, you think like one day you have it completely nailed because you know she goes down and she sleeps for six hours and it's great. Then all of a sudden they have a leap or their teeth begin begins to come in and the schedule completely changes. You know that that's the kind of thing that would drive you absolutely potty if you um, you know if you just weren't good with the fact that you know things are always constantly in flux. And I think that when you're dealing with very early stage startups like we are, you have to believe that, um, you know, yes, they will, you know, they will end up up and to the right, but the journey there isn't a straight line. You know, it's up and down and left and right and forwards and backwards and round and round. Andy, one of the things that I love about you is you're a very um, mission-driven and passion, passionate individual about things that are going to make a positive dent. Tell us about how you specifically plan to make a positive dent in the universe during your time here. Um. I think that as investors, you know, we we are glorified enablers. You know, we are there to service the people who are better and smarter and more passionate than us um, and allow them to do the things that they can do better than anybody else. I mean, one of the things that excites me about this job is getting to spend time with people who, you know, who otherwise I would never have the opportunity to because, you know, they are just way, way cooler and kind of way more driven than I ever am. And I think that if you kind of like play that out to the next level is, you know, what can you do to enable them not just to build great companies, but also to kind of make their dent in the world as well. Um, back in 2013, uh, I had like kind of many things in my life, almost completely by accident, um, ended up like helping start an organization called the Founders Pledge. Um, you know, I, I never set out to become a, a philanthropist and, you know, it's not something that we have a history of in our family. I think, you know, most of my family would have been lucky to even have savings in their account. But what had happened was um, I was at a an event with um, with the, uh, the charity water team um, and talking with their CEO, Scott, one night about all these founders who were in the room, most of whom were very early stage and, you know, they didn't have cash to donate yet, but wouldn't it be cool if we could find a way where they could pledge to to give money to a charity in the future? And so that was really the idea behind the Founders Pledge, which was kind of encouraging altruism through through network in early stage founders so that you make the pledge at the very beginning. And then, you know, when your company exits for a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, then you know you give a, a percentage of your own personal proceeds to the charities of your choice. Um, and what's been amazing is to kind of see that grow under the leadership of um, of the team in London and um, and David Goldberg there to go from you know really just being this little idea that we'd had to now being a team of twenty five people to having you know sixteen hundred pledges who have pledged you know, hundreds of millions of dollars today, even billions of dollars by kind of today's market caps to to do great things with them. And I think the nice thing about this is that, you know, it is a, it's totally self-perpetuating. The more people, I mean, it's amazing to think about applying network effects to something like charity, but this is a real network effects business. So the more people that do it, the more people that talk about it, the more people who get behind the idea and add kind of to the uh, the social cachet of it, the more people who want to do it. And, 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 you know, this isn't to say that these people wouldn't have given to charity before. They probably would have done maybe at some point, but maybe it gets them thinking about it earlier. And maybe we'll get people that hadn't thought about it to do to think about it earlier as well. 
What a massive positive influence and dent in the universe that the Founders Pledge is having. Thank you so much for your work there and all the team that's doing the work there. And what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in your career and life, things that you would want to share with, with our listeners? Um, I think the idea of being authentic is incredibly important. I think it's in this job, it's, it's very easy to kind of always be on and always kind of be playing a persona and always feel like you have to be the the smartest person in the room. And I think what, you know, one of the things that, that makes me a little bit sad about kind of Twitter sometimes is just there's a lot of kind of self-aggrandizing out there and people, you know, who, who just feel like they have to be be playing this game. And, you know, when you talk to, to founders, I think the thing that they often and the thing that I certainly appreciated most as a founder was authenticity. You know, when dealing with an investor, you know, you don't want to feel like you're dealing with someone who wants to be the smartest person in the room. You want to deal with someone who who's listening to you and wants to try and be try and be helpful. And so I, I try and think about, you know, how can I apply authenticity and how can I just be myself and how can I by being myself help my founders more than kind of playing somebody that I'm I'm not. Um, when I think about and maybe this this kind of plays into the second point, which is when I was um, in my business, I realized pretty quick pretty quickly and again kind of down comes back to the um, zone of genius that there is a a big difference between being a leader and being a manager. Some people are born managers and you know they're just really good at the nuts and bolts of you know assessing a team and organizing a team and managing a team. That's not me. I'm, I'm crap at that. I'm useless. I'm totally disorganized. But I think um, leadership is way more than that. Leadership is all about, you know, putting in the time, working hard, staying humble, letting, you know, showing the people around you that you're in, in the fight with them. You're not the person who's locked in the corner office. You're sitting at a desk with them. They see you kind of putting in the hours and, you know, and they want to be in that fight alongside you. And what are some of the values that drive you in your life and how did you come to those values? Um. We touched on this a second ago. I think that working hard and staying humble is incredibly important. I think especially staying humble in this industry. Um, I think hard work is is often a given. Um, I think though that sometimes investors remember that you know our job is a hundred x easier than the the folks in the companies who are actually building the value. You know we are simply their servants. Um, and staying humble is kind of remembering that you know they are the smartest people in the room, not us. Um, and even if you think you are, you should keep your mouth closed about that. Um, this actually came to me with, uh, it was a gift from um, one of our VCs, so Josh Hanna, who used to be at Matrix Partners, um, one Christmas gave myself and Alistair a pair of socks each. And the socks just said, work hard, stay humble. And I, uh, I still actually wear those socks when I go skiing because they're kind of really nice and nice and thick. I do think, though, that, um, you know, the business has to be enjoyable. Um, and I think that having fun is a really important value and I think it's a it's a value that we, we really embody at Uncork as well the um, you know the team all enjoy laughing you know they all enjoy kind of keeping in high spirits and you know I would not be excited about going to work if it felt like I was you know working in a library you know there has to be laughter and there has to be has to be fun um, and I think then also there's you know just just being better as well, like continuing with self improvement, thinking about you know what is it that I want to improve on, you know how can I improve my fitness, how can I do stuff that will help me kind of improve my interactions with founders, and and you know probably the you know that's the the area where I've gotten the most out of Kaufman was kind of allowing using the program there to think about how I can be a better investor. 
And let's actually talk about that. What, what role has Coffin played in your journey, both as an investor and just as a person? You came into the, the program basically a year into your venture career. Talk to me about how, how Coffin Fellows has, has impacted your journey. Yeah, I mean, I came in as a, an entrepreneur turned angel investor turned VC. Um, and I think I'd begun to realize that the difference between angel and kind of lead VC, you know, where you're writing the term sheet, where you're taking a board seat is actually pretty big. Um, and what what I, I was looking for from the program was really kind of one thing that I think I knew about and the other one that I didn't know, but has probably actually been more impactful. The first one was, you know, I given I hadn't been a junior VC and kind of having risen through the ranks, understanding a bit more about the nuts and bolts of kind of the industry. Why is it we do things this way? You know, why are firms structured so? How would you think about this if you were going to be doing doing something in the future? And that's been great. And I kind of think that was kind of table stakes of what I was expecting. I think the thing that maybe I didn't expect was um, was the kind of self-discovery and kind of helping me understand, you know, from less from a, a nuts and bolts basis, but maybe more from a kind of emotional and expertise basis, what is it I'm good at and what do I need to, to improve? Um, the third thing, though, is the people. Um, and this was what was taught to me before I came in was that um, regardless kind of how you feel about the contents on a module by module basis, and you just say this every time that, you know, you're not going to love every piece of content you hear, you know, some of the content, you're actually going to think this is kind of crap. But as long as you kind of have some kind of emotional reaction to it, that's good, because it's going to keep you thinking. The thing, though, that um, that the people said beyond that was it's it's about the people, the, um, the folks that you will meet, the folks that you'll kind of get to know and kind of spend more time with are, are just phenomenal. And I think, you know, there'll be perhaps the the transactional upside. So we've just done a, a series B in one of our companies that happened because of a connection at Kaufman. Um, but more, it's just, you know, the folks who, you know, have, uh, have gone from being faces on a page before we started to actually being people who I, you know, I'm genuinely excited about seeing um, before each module. It's kind of sad that, that this next module that starts on, on Monday is going to be the, the last one. Um, Although I'm excited tonight because uh, Bishal Hanel from 500 Startups is actually staying at my house for the weekend. So we get to hang out for the next few days. That's awesome. I love to hear that. So Andy, how did you make the transition into VC? You, you come from uh, being the CEO and co-founder of Huddle. Tell us about that transition into, into VC. Yeah, so actually, I was luckily, thankfully, not the CEO of Huddle. I was the what we call the other co-founder, which was the, um, the general... Um, person who can go around and kind of fix problems, almost like a consigliere for the business. I started off as um, kind of the technical lead and then kind of the product lead. And then as the company grew and I, you know, we found people that were better for me in each of those roles, I would kind of, I ended up kind of running strategy and, and business development. And what that meant was that I ended up with a team of one, which is really just me. And this talks to kind of not me not enjoying managing people. Um, but I'd moved out to the US in 2010 and I had... Um, a couple of months afterwards, a friend of mine staying on my sofa and he was getting a business off the ground and needed a bit of cash to get it going. And so I I offered to invest um, and I wrote a, a small check into a business that after a couple of twists and turns became Postmates. Um, so, you know, I, not a bad, not a bad first investment. I then um, knew there was never a plan to become an investor. It was just like, you know, I've I've built a great network out here. I kind of know what's going on. I can help with founders who are moving from Europe out here. 
I just started meeting a lot of founders. And so over the course of the next few months, I met Owen McCabe from Intercom at a party who was telling me about what they were building. It's like, that's great. We would use that, use that at Huddle. Let's go and have a beer tomorrow and you can tell me more. And we and I invested. I had a, um, a friend of mine ping me to say there were a group of kooky Estonians coming over from, um, from Europe um, who were building a lightweight SMB SaaS company um, uh, in the CRM space. And I was like, yuck, SMB CRM, that's horrible. And she's like, yeah, but one of the founders, his name is Ragnar Sass. I'm like, okay, how could I not meet a SaaS founder whose name is Ragnar Sass? And so I met the team from Pipedrive. They gave me a demo. They showed me the early metrics blown away. And I, I invested in there. And so there was just, I just got to meet these like incredible teams who were doing amazing things. Whereas like, I would love to give it to be a part of this. If I didn't have my own thing going on, I would go and work for them. And so the easiest thing to do was just to invest a, you know, what little cash I had, I, I put, I put into those businesses. And um, over time, you know, I invested in almost 40 companies, um, many of whom have gone on to do really fantastic things. And um, it kind of so happened that the the Uncork, formerly Softech team, were quietly looking for a founder, angel investor, interested in venture with track record in San Francisco, who was kind of thinking about, about moving to VC. And so I'd known Jeff Clavier through the Postmates investment and Charles Hudson had um, had reconnected us, and you know it was just kind of a this kind of beautiful accidental thing where you know I don't think either of us were kind of thinking you know okay let's let's find a guy who looks like Andy McLaughlin to join the firm, but it happened and 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 it's been it's been fantastic. The rest is history. You, Andy, you've known and worked with so many incredible founders. Tell us a story. Tell me a story of maybe one of your favorite founder stories. Um, there is a a company that I invested in back in, in 2012. Um, when, when I first met them, the three founders had, basically they tried V1 of the company um, and it, it really hadn't worked out very well. They'd raised a bit of capital and they'd spent it all and they'd gone back to living um, with their parents in various towns outside of London. And every week they would come in and they'd co-work out of a coffee shop. And they were building a platform for kind of um, a smart assistant for email. So kind of automation rules around kind of email and other cloud services. And um, I get an email out of the blue from the founder saying, hey, you, you don't know me. I've got this company called Trader.io and we're trying to raise venture and we've got this angel group on the line, but they, um, they won't invest because they say what we're building is too similar to Huddle. I was like, well, it doesn't sound like it, but why don't you come and give me a demo? So he comes in, shows me it, blown away. He's amazing. His CTO is fantastic. And um, and so I speak to the angel group and they're, they're just complete nitwits. They have no idea what's going on. So I tell to Rich, don't let them invest. Let me invest and let me introduce you to Thomas Quarter at AngelPad. Thomas, I get on the call with him. He's like, look, our class is closed, but let me take a look. Thomas Korsenbeck is like, I love these guys. He flies them out to, out to, um, to the US the following week. They do the program. Um, they then go back to London. They, um, they've raised now 40 three or so million dollars from Spark and GGV um, and uh, and True and are just, you know, absolutely flying. And it's probably one of the most exciting B2B companies I've had the, the honor of being being associated with because I call them a um, an eight-year overnight success because for the first kind of like seven or eight years of their life, nobody cared. And like for the last, the last couple, they are just absolutely on fire. And the I think if the team hadn't had just the the grit and staying power to go after what they believed was like a really huge opportunity, this company wouldn't have, wouldn't exist. And I think a lot of founders probably would have would have thrown in the towel after year three or four. 
and you've had uh, many role, role models in your life and many great influences in your life. Can you pick out uh, you know, maybe one or two of, of the biggest influences in your life and why they were that? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, my, my parents have been have been incredible all the way through and like totally supportive. You know, even when I was leaving my, my job to start this silly company, you know, they they never they never kind of blinked at that. But kind of outside of them, there was a, a guy called Charles McGregor. And Charles was the, the CEO of the first company I ever worked for. And Charles was this big, impressive guy. He was running a multi-billion dollar business. Um drove a cool car, but he never wouldn't come and talk to lowly folks in the business like me. And so I got to build a relationship with him from the early days. And um, when we first started Huddle, he was the first person to believe in us and the first person to kind of put money money in. And Charles actually was our chairman then for, for many years until we basically until we sold the business. And what Charles taught me was that um, I think kind of no matter how big or important you think you are, you know, the, the people that you, that you kind of interact with on a daily basis are the people who may well, you know, be a big part of your journey down the line. And there's a great, a great phrase I heard a while back, which was, um, and this doesn't relate to Charles, but just generally be nice to people on their way up because you never know when you'll need them on your way down. That's a good, that's a good quote. Um, Andy, you've given us a lot of favorite movie quotes or just favorite movie. We've referenced a lot of favorite movies. What's your favorite movie? Oh, that's such a tough question. Um, top three. Top three. Um, Empire Strikes Back. The first Matrix movie. Saving Private Ryan. Wow. Going old school on all of them. I love it. I love the references. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us in the arena. What a great conversation, and we are so grateful to have you as a Coffin Fellow. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Arena Podcast. As always, you can get notified of the latest release by subscribing to our newsletter found in the description of this episode or by visiting fellows.org. That's all for now. We'll catch you in the arena next week.